0: Hello, hello, happy Friday, and welcome back to another episode of the Freelance Friday podcast. We've got another audio exclusive this week. I am still having issues with my eyes. I thought it was just a sty, but it's actually quite a bit more involved. I'm going to spare you all the gory details, but I do have an appointment, an emergency appointment on Monday. So please keep your fingers crossed for me that I don't need eyelid surgery because that just sounds completely terrifying and very inconvenient. Let's just say I actually have a lot of really interesting questions to answer for you. So hopefully this is helpful for you. We're just going to hop into it. The first one asks, tell us about what these pictures are from. So on Instagram, I posted some photos and behind the scenes photos of a video shoot that I did this Monday and I had so much fun. I woke up on Tuesday on such a high. I have not felt that excited about a project in a really long time and I loved it. So I shot a course for a friend, a fellow creator, her name's Shelby Lee. She's a poet and she also kind of runs a community for other uh, authors and creators. And this was really a pilot project. So big shout out to Shelby for participating and believing in me. But I wanted to just see if this was something that I really wanted to do through the agency again and offer widely you know next year so shelby came up to detroit we rented out a space and i met her with a small crew to film a new course that she's going to be offering later this year. I also helped her before we got on set with the script writing and editing, loaded that up into a teleprompter for her, got her professionally lit and filmed and professional audio. And now I'm in post-production and I'm going to be editing the course for her. So this was an idea I had because honestly, like, like all services that I've ever offered, they've usually come from clients asking or for people asking me for them I had many people this year saying hey do you know anyone who creates courses like done for you end-to-end courses or hey Latasha, I know you do video content do you specialize in educational content? Is that something that you've ever done? And I've done a lot of that content for myself. Obviously, you all know that I, I do it for my own brand, but I've also been hired to create courses for a bunch of different brands. I did a LinkedIn learning course, but it's always been stuff that I have been on camera for while I love doing that. And I'm not going to like stop doing that anytime soon. I also, I love making people look cool. <laughs> like that's one of my favorite things. And I want to do that. I know that a lot of people who I talk to whether that's through coaching or the freelance friday club or whatever they have the great ideas they know what they need to do but the tech of everything is overwhelming and I get it like we're not all meant to be professional videographers like that is a very specific skill set and one that I've spent over half my life learning so I'm going to leave a, a form actually in the show notes of this episode if you want to get in touch hop on a call now To kind of start locking down dates and and things like that for the new year, which leads us into the next question. Hey, Latasha, do you have any advice for another introvert looking to get comfortable in front of the camera to make video content? So this was actually another reason that I wanted to offer this service because I have been in those shoes, right? Like I have been the person creating a, a course in front of a large production team and by myself. And I kind of know what it feels like to be in in both of those scenarios. And so I really wanted to take an empathetic approach to directing somebody who's on camera, take the approach of somebody who has been in those shoes before and really take kind of a, a coaching type approach to this situation. So that's something where if you are really uncomfortable and you're like, I really don't know how to do this reach out to somebody, you know, reach out and get help with it. If you're just DIYing it. One thing that really helps me is to think about one person that I'm talking to. So I have a few kind of ideal clients in my head that I can think of. Anytime someone says those words, I think of a couple of people's faces really easily. They're people who I'm very comfortable talking to who I've loved working with. And so when I start recording, I just kind of think of them. I almost pretend like I'm having a conversation with them or like I'm explaining something to them. And that really helps me as opposed to staring into like a blank black camera lens not really knowing where it's going to end up so that is a trick that i really really like to use but something i'll say is i think a lot of introverts are afraid to get on camera but once they do they really come alive i don't know what it is but something about the camera not talking back not talking over us not judging us really makes me feel like i can be myself and open up more than i can around people to be honest What are your thoughts on going all in on one to two marketing strategies versus having many? So I think that on the one hand, diversification is really important. I've talked about it over the past few, you know, month or so really that YouTube is kind of being a little bit of a drama queen right now for me and not, not behaving necessarily. So I'm really glad that I do have other platforms. I do have other avenues to reach my audience through when I'm you know, maybe not wanting to create as much for that platform or or finding it harder to do. So I've been leveraging my email list. I've been leveraging just the audio version of this podcast. I've been leveraging Instagram and, and even threads. I've been a little bit unhinged on threads lately. So yeah, I think diversification is important, but at the same time, I am not having full fledged detailed content strategies for all of those platforms. Really the only two that I am committed to doing on a very consistent basis are YouTube and my email list. This is what I would recommend if you are a one or two person team. I think it is very hard, unless you have a much larger marketing department, to realistically be creating you know, detailed content for like 10 different platforms. I think it allows you to go all in, get good, And then number one, you can repurpose content. I, of course, repurpose my YouTube video content onto Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, everywhere, really. And then you can also expand. Once you kind of get into your groove and you get used to saying, all right, I'm doing one YouTube video a week or one blog post a week or whatever that is. Well, maybe now I can add a second platform to the mix and do that with some consistency and care. I would much rather you post to one or two platforms consistently like one YouTube video a week, as opposed to doing all of them very randomly. You know, one video, YouTube video a month and one TikTok a month, like that's probably not gonna get you very far. Definitely not as far as if you were to do either of those consistently on their own. Now, if Instagram or TikTok are, one of your strategic platforms, listen up. I've got some news from our friends, Metricool. You all know that Metricool is a sponsor of this podcast and they've actually just unveiled their 2023 Instagram study to help you analyze your account and fine tune your strategy leading into 2024. This study is based on the analysis of over 300,000 professional Instagram accounts, 2.4 million posts, 9.4 million stories and over 1 million reels. They've also just released a similar study for TikTok sharing whether long or short form content is better on that platform, whether hashtags are still relevant and needed and when the best time to post is. So be sure to check out both studies. I will leave a link down in the show notes and as always be sure to use the code Latasha to get 30 days free on any MetraCool premium Plan. these studies are juicy you definitely want to check them out if you're a data nerd like me is a small business specific enough for niche or should i be more specific in terms of types of small businesses how would i niche down more i get uh this question a lot and it's been coming up a lot more and my my thoughts on niching has changed a little bit i want to explain so this was a youtube comment i think i answered them quickly and said long story short In most cases, I'm going to recommend you niche down a little bit further to, let's say, small retail businesses or small service-based businesses or small restaurants, for example. But I also think that you do not necessarily have to box yourself in that far. I think you can also uh, niche down in terms of service. So like I mentioned earlier, I'm offering course production services to Uh, creators and and online educators, I am not saying I'm only offering that for marketing creators or authors or, you know, any specific niche. I want to work with anyone. In fact, that sounds really fun. If there is a gardener, like somebody who teaches a gardening course, you bet I would go out to their garden and film a course. The offer is not bound by industry, but it is in instead uh, niche down by offer, right? And what I am actually going to provide. And you can absolutely do the same thing if you feel like niching down further is really boxing you in. Instead of offering a social media management package that rent, runs the gamut of organic, social, paid content, you know, uh all of the things, maybe you really specialize in one particular aspect of that for businesses. And that is kind of how you niche down. I think the idea of a niche is that people want to go to your website or go to your Instagram and see that you offer exactly what they need. Industry can be that, you know, if you know the industry very well, but it can also just be in terms of service. How did this SMMA launch go? I miss your launch breakdowns. Thank you for that. And let me know you, you guys, if you would like to hear or see launch breakdowns again, course launch breakdowns. I did a few of those in the past. They were fun, but I kind of felt like they were getting a little redundant, but it went well. So the long story short is an SMMA is the social media management accelerator doors are closed now. So this is not an ad, but it's a course that I offer highest revenue generating course for sure. And I planned on July, 2023 being the last cohort that I offered. Then life happened. I got COVID, uh, lots of things happened and I was planning on launching a brand new course around now. I decided I should take it easy. I should not push myself to, you know, overdo it with a new course and push that launch back to January. So stay tuned y'all. I'm super excited for it. But I said, all right, I have the time. SMMA is relatively easy for me to launch because it's literally just kind of, pressing a button and turning everything on again. I know how to do it. I've done five rounds of it. So it was sort of a surprise launch for everybody. And because of that, I wasn't, I didn't have high hopes for it. I was like, let's just get in, you know, a few people who maybe missed out on the July session. And I'm thinking like maybe 20 students or something, like not a huge initiative by any means, but I, it was really surprising to me. It really mirrored the July launch. I mean, I think we had a handful less students than in July, but more or less, it was another full class, which was really cool. I'm really glad to be able to serve those students. And we had our first call yesterday and I'm, I'm also on a high from that. I just met so many amazing people and it really, uh, yeah, brought me back to why I do this, but anyway, I'll save the the sentimental stuff. But where was I at with that? Oh, one of the key learnings from this launch was really that I don't maybe have to overcomplicate it for myself. You know, I put a lot of pressure on these launches every time. And this time I had this attitude that was very like, you know, whatever happens, happens. I'm not expecting anything huge out of it. I'm not going to push or force. Not that I ever would force anyone to do anything, but you know what I'm saying? And it turned out really well. And I think part of that is because I was showing up very calm and very you know carefree about it. And I also didn't do any of the things that I didn't like doing. I didn't post a single TikTok about it this, this time. I didn't post a single Instagram reel about it. I didn't uh, overdo it with webinars or anything like that. I really let my emails do the selling and my open house calls, which are Kind of, they're exactly what they sound like. They're a webinar style format where I let people in who are interested in the program, but just have some questions about it. Just want to talk to me. Just want to get a feel for my teaching style a little bit before they decide. And those things are really what sold the program for me. So it's not to say I'll never post a TikTok or Instagram about SMMA again, but I don't think I need to push myself to do a daily TikTok. Like I've done that before for other launches, feeling like I just had to do it because everybody else told me that that's how you sell stuff. And realistically, uh, that's not how I sell stuff or that's not what the evidence is pointing to. So yeah, it went well. And thank you for asking. I've got two questions that are about different things, but The, my answer to them is really the same. So I'm going to read you both of them. One, how did you transition into asking for four figure retainers or contracts confidently? And the second one is what would you recommend when brands only want to work on a gifted basis instead of paid? So like I said, I know these are about two different things, kind of an influencer content creator talk versus a service provider, but my answer really is the same And you have to just know the value of what it is that you're providing. I have, I've had two situations like this recently on both sides. I had a large sponsorship, one of the biggest sponsorship deals that I negotiated for myself. Recently, I was so terrified to give them this number, but I gave it and I got it. And what got me to do that is just sitting down and doing the math and realizing like, this is a lot of work and what I am providing them is not just you know, the video, but it's also the endorsement. It's the vote of confidence on this product. The number that I'm giving is very large, but it would, it would break even for them. If they sold, I think the number I was like 19 of the products that I was being paid to promote, which they easily can do. So kind of just sitting down, breaking it down like that, thinking about what the value you are really providing, not just the deliverable, not just, Oh, this is a couple of videos, but this is, my, my approval of this product that is very closely aligned to my niche that I know my audience is going to love to hear about. Like that is how you have to position it to yourself in your head. And then similarly, this course production offer that I'm coming up with, I feel like the podcast audience is kind of like a secret society, you know? So you're getting the, the early tea, I guess, once I launch it publicly, those rights are not going to be cheap. And again, you have to do the same thing. If I am creating something that people can use, you know, if you use this in a smart way and create an evergreen course with me that you can sell for years to come, there is a very high earning potential. I've made almost a million dollars from courses alone. And I don't say that as always to brag or to sound cool. I say that because I know what the potential of a high quality online course can make you. And so, yes, a, a client might be paying, you know, a good amount of money up front to get it developed, but that has so much earning potential for years and years to come. So whatever it is that you sell, whatever it is that you do, think of it that way. Try to, try to understand the ROI, the return on investment, and how that's going to tie back to the service or, you know, the product or whatever it is that you're offering. If you can't do that, then it might be time to go to the drawing board. Really, uh, you know, there have been offers that I've tested, I've piloted, and I realized, no, I actually don't know. I'm not confident that I can get the client the ROI that they need, or that this is really, that that the juice juice is worth (laughs) worth the squeeze, if you will. And so I discontinued those those services. So yeah, that's the the long story short. Okay, um, how do you book speaking gigs? Okay, another great question. And honestly, it's going to tie back to video again. My answer is I've never really campaigned or pitched for a speaking gig. They have always come inbound and they have always said, We saw you on YouTube. We saw your YouTube videos. So if that is something that you want to do, if you want to book more speaking gigs, I think it is, I'm not going to say necessary, but I think it is a very good idea to consider starting a YouTube channel or sure, even short form content. But I think YouTube in particular lends itself a little bit better because you're actually doing like mini speeches. You know, if you're doing a 20 minute YouTube video, well, that's half the, the length of a keynote. So they can really understand your storytelling capabilities, your, uh, you know, your speaking style, your pace, your tone, all of those things from a YouTube video. So yeah, if that is something that you want to do, I recommend you do it and you don't need to necessarily even build like a huge following on YouTube, but just having that basically portfolio available. And if you do do outbound, which absolutely you can do, I mean, most all conferences post a speaker submission where you can learn about the requirements, learn if you are uh, a fit and submit. Even just posting a couple YouTube video links in that submission, I would imagine is going to get you further than just saying, Hey, just trust me. I'm really good at speaking. Some of them even require them. What do you think about digital nomad lifestyle and how would you go about it? If you ever decided to try it out, it's so funny that somebody asked this because just recently I posted an episode. Maybe you listened to it. Maybe you didn't, but I really enjoyed it. I talked to Shannon Siegel, who is a digital nomad and she shared so many good tips about it. My personal answer, I definitely, when I was first envisioning, you know, what freelance life would look like for me, I definitely thought location independence was something that was very important to me, but I've actually never really been interested in like the digital nomad life. I very much am a creature of comfort. I like home. I like having a home base and while I do love to travel I never saw myself like bouncing around from place to place. I've never lived in a different country though. And I actually last year kind of made plans to live in France for a little bit. I didn't tell you all about this, but I, I was like pretty close to doing it, but some things happened in my family. Everyone's okay, but just that changed that being something that we really wanted to do. So Maybe in the future I will do that, but I don't think it's going to be like a bounce around. I think it will be I go rent an apartment in Paris for six months or as long as I possibly can on with an American you know passport and then come home for a couple months and maybe go back or maybe not. I don't know. So that's my answer. I'm a creature of comfort, but I love to travel. And also I'm going to say I saw a tweet, tweet or thread, I don't know, one of those things the other day that was like unrated travel opinion is that traveling around the US is amazing and not to be like America on you, but America in and of itself has so many amazing places to visit. Like you, you don't have to go abroad to experience different cultures and different types of lifestyles and different types of geography. So I did a lot of that. My first year of freelancing before uh, COVID happened in 2019, I Did a working vacation in Denver. I did working vacations in uh, Toronto and Montreal. I know that's not America, but North America. So there's so much diversity just in, you know, North America too. So anyway, just a, just a reminder. What is the initial way you approached prospective clients when you were starting out? I thought of making a simple flyer with services I'd offer and passing them out to local businesses. I just had a really good conversation in the freelance Friday club about this because I am renting a studio. I am uh, have a new studio home, if you will. It's just kind of part-time, so it's not like a huge studio that is my own, but it's kind of a shared studio space because I'm going all in on this video production, the course production stuff. So excited for that and to show you around whenever my eyeballs are normal and I can vlog again. But I went there before I officially signed just to meet the owner and check out the space, make sure it was what I wanted. And, you know, the owner was asking me, Hey, what are you going to use the studios for? I explained to her and she was like, Oh wait, we should talk. Like that sounds really cool. I actually have been thinking about, you know, recording courses and things of that nature. So who knows if that for sure is going to happen. But the point is it just reminded me like if you're looking for clients and, and I wasn't going into that situation, obviously trying to sell to anybody, it's just, If you're looking for clients, start talking to people and most importantly, take, take a break from being online. I know that might sound wild to say, because I'm a huge advocate of having an online presence. I think it is extremely valuable, but there is also a lot of value in getting out into your community, getting out and just talking to people and telling people what you do. So yeah, there was a a conversation in the freelance Friday club about this. Also recently, and we were just kind of brainstorming ideas together of different ways to catch people's attention. I know that whenever somebody sends me something or gives me something tangible, that's definitely something that catches my attention. Being able to talk to people in person catches my attention. So the idea that you mentioned in your question about flyers, I think go for it. I don't think it hurts leaving something behind to take it up a notch. I would definitely encourage you to try to speak to somebody, you know, really get a hold of somebody and really start to build a relationship with them. Speaking of the freelance Friday club, I swear this is not an ad. This is a real question. Do you offer mentorship or is there some type of group message discord group that we could join that includes more professionals like you. So the freelance Friday club, the freelance Writer club is where it's at. I feel like there's just been really good vibes in there lately. I've had this membership group for a few years actually, but we've gotten a, an influx of new members recently. And I think it's just been really good, positive energy in there. So we do masterminds where we get together, we chat about what's going on in our businesses. I give you advice, we give each other advice. And then we also do office hours, which with me, which are just pure Q and A's. So if you have something you want me to look at or something you have a question about, we have those. I'm also moving it very soon. If you sign up now, nothing will change for you. It's really just a backend move, but once I relaunch it, which I'm hoping to do in November, there will also be free courses in there for you too, every single month, including guest courses, courses from, from just me. It's a, it's a really good time. And, uh, I'll post the link in the show notes. All right. Just a few left here. I love this question. If you could do anything for a living other than what you're currently doing, what would it be? And I think the only thing that I've ever really seriously wanted to do There was a period of time where I wanted to be in the military, which I realized very quickly I was probably not cut out for. My whole family on my dad's side, including my father, was in the military. He was in the Air Force, and I think it was kind of just like a family – I don't know. No one ever pressured me to, but I think I more just like wanted to – to keep that tradition going. And I realized, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not physically cut out to do that. The only thing after that, that I wanted to do was be a teacher. I'd actually always wanted to be a teacher since I was a little, little girl. I would come home and talk to my beanie babies. I was obsessed with buying little whiteboards. I would go to like family dollar or whatever, and buy like the small whiteboards and just write out my lessons from school, like such a freaking nerd. Right. Uh, I love doing that. And I, I still love doing that, obviously. When I went to college, so I actually went to community college for the first year and a half or so. And I really fell in love with community college. I have so much more positive, you know, things to say about my community college than my university. Not that my university was bad, but I developed really close relationships with my instructors. And I just, I thought it was just really powerful to see like, you know, much older people in class with me and people who maybe didn't even graduate high school and just had a GED go. And just, I just thought it was, I think it's a really powerful and important type of institution. So I always have wanted to teach at community college and I still do. And the thing that is stopping me from doing so is getting a master's degree because I just, I just don't know if that's what I want to do. If I want to spend that much money, spend that much time. Just to get that just to be able to teach. So some people have told me that you can teach at community college without a master's degree. I don't know how to do that. If anyone has any advice for me, let me know, but I still would love to do it. And I know I don't even tell me you're not going to get paid anything out. I, I know I've looked at the job descriptions. It's not a lot, but I still do really want to do that. In a hypothetical world where you're not American and don't live on the American continent, how would you start your freelance journey if you specifically wanted to work with American clients? So obviously I am American, do live on the American continent, but I can speak to it from the perspective of working with international clients. I actually have a whole podcast episode. It's an old, old one, but I think all of my advice is really still relevant. I'll try to find it and link it for you about how to work with international clients. Actually, a lot of my clients are, or at least were international. My first really long-term freelance client was in France. Um, I've worked with clients in South Africa, in uh, Canada in London and you know, all over the place. So my advice to you is if you're looking for clients in a particular area, show them examples of clients that you've worked with in a particular area. And I know you're kind of like, but wait, how do I get the first one? And the answer, in my opinion, is probably just finding some portfolio clients. If you have on your website, a list of, you know, five different clients you've worked with, and they're all American brands, I'm not even going to ask, I'm not even going to ask where you're located. I'm going to probably just assume that you're also American or at the very least that you can make an American time zone work. Like, I'm just going to assume that that's all good. If what your portfolio shows is also in my geographic area. So yeah, I think, uh, start with portfolio projects, get a handful of por- portfolio projects under about, if you can go where they are. So for instance, different countries might use different social platforms more often than others. Some are not even available like TikTok, I think is still not even available in India. So if you were targeting clients in India, obviously I wouldn't recommend that you start a TikTok. That would be a giant waste of your time, you know, so learning about and really kind of immersing yourself into the culture of that business community and and going where they are. And if there is any time zone differences, making sure that you are keeping that into account. So if you're going to be scheduling a live stream. Not scheduling it. Let's say that you are in Europe, not scheduling it for like 9 a.m. Your time, because most Americans won't be awake that early, things like that. If you can gather testimonials, even better. So again, if you do a portfolio project, maybe you can even get them to record a video interview for you and talk about how great it was to work with you. And kind of let them do the talking for you. Let them sort of be one of the faces, be one of the brands that they're seeing and they're getting this sort of case study from. Last question is a fun one. What have you done to turn your home office into the perfect workspace for you? Just interested in what the perfect Latasha home office looks like. My husband is helping me renovate my office and we just put up fun wallpaper and I got a pink rug and now I love working here. I love to hear that for you. So I'm actually doing a video again, as soon as my eyes get better, I have a plan to, I've gotten some really fun new office and tech gear and like desk stuff that I want to show you. And so that will be coming very soon. So definitely stay tuned for that. But other than, you know, some of the tech and specific things like that, uh, number one is a blanket. I always have a blanket on my chair. I live in Michigan, so it is Cold, like half of the year I mean the summers are very hot but even still I always keep a blanket on me because I just it's like my comfort thing I think it's like an anxiety thing so that really helps also a standing desk has been quite the game changer for me it gets tiring just staring at a screen all day and so being able to move from sitting to standing and and back again just kind of keeps me on my toes no pun intended and and like keeps me energized throughout the day. So that's a big thing. I've also found that having most of what I need throughout the day in my office really helps me when it comes to focus. So I'm lucky enough that my office is in basically what is supposed to be a bedroom, but I'm not using it as a bedroom. So I actually have a small bathroom, like a, an ensuite. I call it the green room. So I use it as my getting ready bathroom. So I have all my hair stuff in there. I can obviously just use the restroom if I need to throughout the day. I keep a toothbrush in there. Like everything I need that would normally take me outside of my office. And, you know, if I'm walking through the kitchen, oh, well, you know what? Let's make a snack. And, oh, let's, you know, I I have to stay focused because basically everything is here. In my dream world, I would also put a coffee maker in here, but I just feel like that might like make a mess. And so I haven't done that yet, but yeah, those are some of the things that helped me. I would love to hear from you. If you are still listening 41, 42 minutes in to the podcast, please let me know what makes your office the perfect workspace for you. And I really thank you for tuning in and sticking with me. It means so much to me. I appreciate you all more than you know. Please check out the show notes for the links that I've mentioned, including the links to the Metrical studies. They're really cool. And I think you'll learn a lot if TikTok or Instagram are part of your strategy. I'll also leave the Freelance Friday Club and also some info for anyone who is interested in creating a course and might be interested in working together in the future. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will talk to you next Friday.